0: Ever since I was a child, I've had problems with my left ear. If I ever got swimmers ear or an ear infection, always in the left ear. In fact, last year I had a small tear in my left eardrum, had to have tubes surgically inserted into my left ear like I was a kid in elementary school. The inner ear sends signals to the brain about your body movements that help you keep your balance. So any inner ear disorder can make you feel dizzy. Consequently, I've had a few experiences with vertigo. Vertigo is a feeling of being off balance, being completely disoriented, where you feel like you are spinning or the world around you is just spinning. You lose all reference to where you are in relation to the ground. and Like jet pilots and astronauts have to learn to deal with vertigo because when vertigo hits, you don't know which way is up or down or sideways, and that's a bad thing if you're piloting a fighter jet or a space module. What we're going to look at this morning is a case of spiritual vertigo. Two people who lost all sense of their place in life, who were so disoriented, so confused about what is important in life, that they lost their sense of balance, lost their moral center, lost track of simply what is right and what is wrong. Instead of being securely anchored in their new faith in Christ, their lives very suddenly spin completely out of control. And then they crash in a very public and very devastating way. The story from Acts chapter five comes right on the heels of the the most beautiful description of the early church that we heard read a few minutes ago in Acts chapter four. All the believers were together, one heart, one mind. They shared everything with each other. It was an infectious fellowship, a true community, a a real sense of, of love coupled with powerful preaching and teaching. And God's spirit was alive as they generously uh, took care of each other's needs, financial needs. And we heard about one man named Barnabas who sold some land and then gave the proceeds of the sale to the church. I mean, it was so in line with Jesus's command to his disciples to really love each other as he had loved them fully and sincerely, even sacrificially. They were living exactly as Jesus wanted. This dynamic community of believers, they, they were doing it. It was, it was I- idyllic, almost, almost. Because there are no perfect people, even within the body of Christ. And so in chapter 5, what we see are humans acting human. People who say they believe in Jesus, but who just can't shed their self-focused, selfish behavior habits that they've developed over a lifetime. Let me read the story of this troubled couple, Ananias and Sapphira. Read from Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. And with his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. And then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept back for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold and after it was sold? Wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. And when Ananias heard this, he fell down and died, and great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young man came forward, wrapped wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price uh, you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. And Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. And at that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young man came in and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Amen. This is the word of God. Man, there are so many questions I have about this story. It is so bizarre, so out of place in the narrative of the the mushrooming growth of the early church. I mean, if you just wanted to stop the growth of the church, just let this story out. Get it out there circulating through Jerusalem. This is not the kind of story you wanna put into your brochure about church membership. Nobody would make this story up and insert it here after that beautiful glowing description of the church in chapter four. And remember when this was written, there were no chapter divisions. The story of Barnabas's generosity would have flowed right into this very contrary story about greed and judgment. It's a, it's a cold slap in the face to the joy and to the love that we've seen so far in the early church. But it's also so instructive about the complexities and the weaknesses of human nature and the way people approach their faith even from within the body of Christ. Ananias and Sapphira. Well, what do we know about them? Well, first, that they're married. It's a bit strange that they are the first married couple to be mentioned in the early church. In fact, the only other couple mentioned specifically in Acts is Priscilla and Aquila, and that's not till chapter 18. They're the total opposite of Ananias and Sapphira. Priscilla and Aquila, they just shine so brightly as a couple who are in ministry together, as a couple who who support and encourage the Apostle Paul. On the one hand, you have to admire the unity that you see in Ananias and Sapphira. They are in this together, they are tight, they are on the same page. You know, when we do premarital counseling, that's one of the things we look for in a couple. Are they kind of united in their life goals? Are they playing as a team together? Are they on the same side or are they kind of competing against each other? Are they rowing their boat in the same direction? Are they paddling through life in different directions? There's nothing more frustrating than being in a relationship canoe with one person paddling this way and the other person paddling that way. Healthy couples need this basic sense of compatibility and a real unity around their basic core life's values and goals. Otherwise, the strain of that tension of always pulling in different directions, eventually that strain will take its toll on the relationship. But Ananias and Sapphira, they were paddling in the same direction but their relationship was wrapped around the wrong center. Their moral center was off. Their sense of right and wrong was askew. And something inside them popped to the surface when they saw Barnabas give his gift. Barnabas wasn't seeking any glory or recognition through his gift. Something, I think, dark happened in their minds as they watched Barnabas. Barnabas was a humble guy. He was a real servant. We know he went on to become the mentor for the apostle Paul, took Paul under his wing because people were suspicious of Paul's past as a persecutor of the church. But Barnabas lived up to the meaning of his name, son of encouragement, just a humble and and generous guy. But what Ananias and Sapphira saw was the honor and the respect he received from the rest of the church. And for some unexplained, irrational reason. They wanted that for themselves. They wanted respect. They wanted to be noticed. They wanted to be appreciated. They wanted to be admired. They wanted to be thanked. They weren't concerned about the needs of others. They were really in it for themselves. So their own needs to be appreciated, to be thanked, to be looked up to, took precedent. And that egocentric attitude just ran so contrary to the beautiful spirit of the early church that we read about in chapter four. You know, in studying why people give to charities and colleges and other nonprofit organizations, even like the church, sociologists have come up with with three basic motivations for giving. The first is called social exchange. Social exchange. That's where there is a calculation as to what the giving will do for the donor. The donor wants recognition for the gift, and the bigger the gift, the bigger the recognition. A library with their name on it, a plaque on the wall, a room named after the family. I mean, why do we have a room in the church called the Wenman Room? Makes you wonder if that's a good thing. The social exchange kind of gift is always public and it's always publicly recognized. And churches can fall into doing this kind of recognition in a capital campaign, for example, where names are displayed on the wall and you got the saints club if you give this amount and you got the angels club if you give this amount and then there are all the poor dumb schlubs down in the widow's Might club, you know. You give in order to get something in return. And tapping into this need for social exchange is a very effective and popular way of raising money. But for the church, I kind of think it goes against what Jesus said in Matthew 6 verse 3 where he said when you give to the needy don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing in other words don't make your giving about you and your ego the second type of motivation for giving is called beneficence beneficence that describes the kind of person who genuinely and sincerely wants to benefit those who are less fortunate than themselves but it's a one-way transaction in other words the donor. Isn't personally going to get involved, but they are sympathetic to the cause. It can be a little bit condescending, you know, helping you know those poor people. It's often at a distance. The donor is not necessarily looking for recognition, but does receive a good feeling for doing the right thing and in, in helping someone else out. A thanks would be nice, but a thanks is not really necessary. The third motivation is called solidarity. Solidarity. That describes people who give because they are—they really believe in the cause and they, they want to personally get involved. They want to come alongside and identify with the person or the group or the cause and they will do so sacrificially. They will give sacrificially and they wish they could even give more because they believe so intensely in the mission. Their giving is very personal. Like someone who gets involved with Mothers Against Drunk Drivers because they lost a family member in a tra- tragic auto accident. That's solidarity, when people don't just give their money, but they give themselves to the cause. And so Ananias and Sapphira, they're in that first category of social exchange. And it's not such a terrible thing in and of itself, but they go one step further and then they lie about the amount of the gift that they're giving. They both say it's a whole amount, whole amount that they receive for the sale of this piece of property. It's the whole amount. When in reality, they kept some of it back. Why did they lie about it? That's what mystifies us, and it's what mystifies the Apostle Peter. I don't know how Peter knew the true amount of the sale price. I guess it was the Holy Spirit, because I don't think he could look it up on Zillow.com. The Holy Spirit had to have somehow communicated this to Peter. And Peter is really stupefied by Ananias' actions. Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? Peter asked And After it sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? It's not just lied to human beings, but to God. I mean, what were you thinking, Ananias? No one put a gun to your head. No one was twisting your arm to make a donation. No one even asked you to make a gift. If you'd been honest about the amount of the sale you were donating, you would have certainly gotten the recognition and approval you were looking for. There was actually no need to lie. There was no need to inflate your generosity. It didn't have to come to this. It didn't have to reach this level. Peter uses a word to describe what is happening here. That's only used twice in the whole Bible. It's translated as kept for yourself in verse 2. It literally means to misappropriate, mis- misappropriate or really to embezzle. The only other place it is used in the Bible is Joshua chapter 7. Under under similar circumstances, a guy named Achan misreports the results of a raid on Israel's enemies and keeps some of the booty back for himself, hides his ill-gotten gains in his tent, and then something which God had specifically forbidden. The end result for Achan was that he was stoned to death for his crime. Embezzlement. Maybe Ananias had that story in mind when Peter brought the hammer down and exposed his lie, embezzlement. Or maybe Ananias was thinking about the fact that in Roman law, they took real estate transactions so seriously that if someone embezzled money from the sale of a piece of property, that was a crime punishable by death. So Achan's story and Roman law, those two things may have combined to be what triggered Ananias so severely to have a heart attack or to stroke out, you know, when he was exposed as a fraud. We're not told why or even how he died. Peter didn't do anything really to cause his death. There were no lightning bolts from heaven. We don't know if his death was some kind of punishment from God because normally when that happens in scripture, we're told of the cause and the effect of God's wrath, but not in this case, he just drops dead. Ananias' crime is not really about the money, it's about the lie and the thought that he could somehow fool the Holy Spirit. They were attempting to impress the people in the church, but they were ignoring the very presence of the Holy Spirit in the church. The amount of money didn't matter. This was a spiritual failure of great magnitude. But what Ananias didn't understand was that grace would have been available to him even after he was exposed. If he had repented, if he had seen the error of his ways, if he had turned to Christ for mercy and said, oh, I'm so stupid, his sin was not unforgivable. Even though Peter said it was severe, I mean, verse 3 says, how is it that Satan has filled your heart so that you have lied to the Holy Spirit? I mean, that sounds severe from Peter. But let's remember something about Peter's background. Satan is not referred to much in the Gospels, only eight times, and two of those times involve Peter. The first is in Mark eight thirty-three, where Peter first declares his faith in Jesus as Messiah. But when Jesus goes on to explain that he has to go to Jerusalem and die on the cross, Peter jumps in and says, no, that can't happen. And Jesus gives him the sharpest rebuke, the sharpest response in verse 33, Mark eight thirty-three. It says, Jesus turned and looked at his disciples. He rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. That is the sharpest language Jesus ever used with anybody. So if Peter could be forgiven and transformed, then so could Ananias. His sin was not unforgivable. The second reference to Satan that's concerning the Apostle Peter came in the upper room at the Last Supper when Jesus ate the Passover meal with his disciples before he was arrested. Jesus warns Peter that Satan will try and take over him and that Peter would fail miserably. And that's what happened, Luke 22, verse 31. Uh, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. But he replied, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. And Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. Peter does deny Jesus three times as predicted. And one of the most poignant post-resurrection encounters is when Jesus restores Peter by three times reminding him of Christ's love. So even though Ananias and his wife gave up ground to Satan, their sin was not unredeemable. It was not unforgivable. We're told Sapphira was a full partner in the lie, fully complicit, fully responsible as well, and fully as able to receive grace from the Holy Spirit if if in her dark moment of exposure she had turned to Christ for forgiveness. Instead, they both had decided to put the Holy Spirit to the test And in that Holy Spirit-charged atmosphere, it didn't end well for either of them. The gravity in which this story is told serves to emphasize one important thing. Up until this point, all the attacks on the early church came from the outside, came from the threats and the violence executed by the local authorities in the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court of Jerusalem, the apostles. They'd been beat up, roughed up, whipped, publicly flogged. But that opposition from the outside only pushed the Christians closer together, made their bond of fellowship even stronger. That was an external threat. This was the first internal threat on the infant church. And friends, internal threats are always more dangerous than external ones. Churches, organizations, nations usually die from the inside out, not because of external threats, because of internal decay and Ananias and Sapphira, their dishonesty, their lack of integrity, to bring that into the community of the believers at this early stage would have been like introducing a deadly virus to a healthy body. Integrity. You cannot have healthy relationships without a sense of integrity. You can't have a healthy church without a sense of integrity. Integrity is more than honesty. It speaks to a person's basic makeup, to their their character, their core, it means a person is the same on the inside as on the outside. There's a, there's a wholeness, a completeness to their personality and to their actions. There's a consistency between their inner life of motivations and desires and then their outer life of actions and behavior. Integrity is something that requires ongoing attention because we to get all the different parts of our lives working together, kind of pulling in the same direction. A person with integrity... It has to be consistent and trustworthy in principle. They say what they mean and they mean what they say. Integrity, it's like the bones of the human body. It holds up all the other organs, allows it to move. Without bones, the human body would just collapse into a blob of flesh. The importance of integrity in the body of Christ cannot be overstated because without integrity, there can be no trust. Haven't we seen too much damage done to churches and ministries and even the government and businesses and schools and all the rest because of a lack of basic integrity on the part of our leaders in those groups? Don't we long for integrity in our leaders? If we went through the news of just this past year, we'd end up with a very long list. And without trust, relationships fall apart. Nothing kills a relationship faster than a lack of integrity. Philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche once said, I'm not upset that you lied to me. I am upset that from now on, I can't believe you. Isn't that often the case? It's not the event itself, but the lie that follows, trying to cover it up, digging the hole even deeper. Psalm 44, verse 21 says that God knows the secrets of our hearts. We're not fooling him. We might be able to fool others, but never God. If I was writing the Bible, I would have left this part out. I'd skip it because it shows that the early church wasn't as perfect as sometimes we like to think it was but we need this story in the Bible because we need to see how the church can deal with real life issues and problems in a way that honors Christ and points people to a deeper life in Him. We're going to face pressures from outside the church coming from our culture, but we also have faced, and we will continue to face challenges from within the church and challenges that would weaken our body, make it more susceptible to spiritual disease. Integrity was the first test faced by the early church. And it challenges us today. This week, take some time to reflect on the integrity of your own life in Christ. Are you the same on the inside and the outside? Is your life really based on inner core principles of a godly life? I mean, where do you need God's grace maybe to get you back on the right track with integrity? Where do you maybe need to rebuild a relationship that's been damaged by a lack of integrity? Integrity was the first that tested the internal strength and health of the early church. Next week, we'll look at the second internal challenge that tested the early church as racism rears its ugly head and threatens the unity of the body of believers in Acts 6. I hope you'll be around for us for that next week. But let's think about integrity personally and in the life of the church. It's the building block, the basic building block of all healthy fellowship. Let's pray together. Lord, again, we thank you for the surprise of scripture that makes us have to think in new and different ways, Lord, because we're we're not comfortable with this story. It makes us uh, sit on the edge of our seat and grind our teeth a little bit because it's it's so dramatic and so unusual, Lord. And so help it to be a good wake up call to us to look at the integrity of our lives, and especially in this pandemic era, Lord, to understand what how important it is to be the same on the inside as we are on the outside. Let not just our love and our beliefs shine through, let our integrity shine through in our business dealings, in our friendships, in our family, wherever we might go, Lord, but especially in our church and in our giving. Lord, may we have integrity before you. We thank you now for this. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.